So anytime there's uncertainty, anytime there's unknowns, which is right now, uh, would be one of those times. Of course, that brings up different emotions and kind of stirs our fears a little bit. At least it does that for me. Um, I really believe that as we move into this next season, and you can come back to me on this later because I think we'll see it more in hindsight. Um, this is actually an invitation to trust God, to like actually believe that, first of all, he, he has always provided for us. He has led us to this point. He hasn't failed us or let us down to actually believe he will continue to do that. Um, and I, I believe that. I actually think this, this season that we're moving into as a church is an opportunity for all of us to grow in that and to experience that in, in deeper and, and tangible ways. Um, for me, the hardest thing in my life right now or the lesson that I'm learning is the, the need to let go of control. That's actually pretty easy to do with my health because I know I can't control that. It's more difficult in like, like this where I have the illusion of control, right? So just to trust that God is leading us and that he's guiding us and that he will provide. I expect my faith to grow as a result of this and what I'm learning. As I'm sure you all know, and I'll keep saying this, uh, we have incredible, incredible leadership here at this church with our, our elder board, our staff, so many like mature, godly, wise people. I also know that God is not surprised by any of this. You know who's not panicking? God. No, he, um, thank you, Evan. Uh, he, he saw this coming and, he, and he's got us. So I really believe God has brought the right people here and we'll continue to do that. Um, we have a great staff, and just I want to say about Lisa, obviously a very um, gifted, capable, mature, um, godly leader. I told her, she was here for like three months, and I was like, can you please be my pastor? And I was not even, not even joking. I mean, like that, yeah, uh, that's what it looks like. And so I'm just so pleased that the, that the board has made that decision for the interim, and I'm sure you are as well. Want to continue to invite, continue to invite you to keep praying. Boy, that was a hard way to say that. Please keep praying. Continue for for us, for the staff, for what God has uh, for Kamaway in this next season. So thank you. All right. Well, counting today, uh, I have three more sermons here, as like at least as a pastor. And so, of course, I've been thinking a lot about what I want to leave you with. Um, I figured this out that the other day. In my 20 years as a pastor, um, I have preached over a thousand sermons. Not all of them good. Uh, I usually type everything out, you know, and then because I found that doesn't go very well when I wing it. Uh, but based on my average wor sermon word count, that's like five million words. So I'm trying to figure out out of five million words uh, what I can't do that all. So what I want to leave you with. And I want to come, come back to some of my favorite themes, and uh, you could call them like life messages for me. And no surprise here, but I'm going to focus on Jesus for the next three weeks. Um, and in doing that, I hope to speak to what I believe are some core aspects of, of our DNA, 
of who we are uh, as a church and will continue to be these things going forward. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. I need to get something out, so go ahead and turn there for real. Not on the screen. That's okay. You can see it. Um, Philippians is the Apostle Paul's letter to some believers living in a Roman city, Roman colony, called Philippi. And in the first century, as a Roman colony, that means that Philippi was very much a part of the broader Roman Empire. The good news about this passage is you can actually read it with no background or context whatsoever and very clearly get the main idea. But I think to really see how surprising Paul's message is here, how much like punch this would have had to the first century believers in Philippi receiving this letter and reading it out loud, you have to keep in mind just how the first century world worked. In this culture, in places like Philippi, in places like Rome, there was an invisible ladder And this ladder had a a top rung, or step in this case, where you want it to be. And then there was the bottom, where most people happened to find themselves. And of course, everyone knew their place on the ladder. Every person you met, there were all kinds of social clues. There were like these status markers, so that you could instantly know whether this other person was above you or below you on the ladder. And so knowing and defending your place was super important. By the way, if you didn't know where you ranked, guess what that meant? You were probably on the bottom. That's how that worked. So at the top of this ladder were obviously the most, the most powerful people, the persuasive, the eloquent, the privileged, the elite, people born into the right families, the beautiful, the successful, the talented, people with the most social media followers, uh, When people in the ancient world, when they thought of the elite, when they thought of of the rulers and the kings and the leaders and the people at the very, very top, they thought of people like Alexander the Great. At the age of 20, Alexander succeeded his father. His name was Philip II. Here is the Greek empire under Philip II. Uh, That's Alexander's father. Today, of course, that's modern Greece, and it includes a few countries to the north, so not bad as far as empires go. Philippi, the place where Paul sent this letter, is right there on that map. Philippi was named after King Philip II, Alexander's father. Question, do you think that the people who lived in Philippi were aware of that connection? Yes, of course. After King Philip um, II died, young Alexander took the throne of the Greek Empire. He was 20. Now, some people at 20, their big goal is to finish school or maybe get a decent job or buy their first nice car. I don't know what your ambitions were when you were 20. Alexander at 20 decides, I'm thinking about mm, conquering the world. What my father did, that's nice. It was good for him and all that. But I want to do something much greater. And we have to scale this out to see. So here's the Greek empire 
under Philip II, the same map I just showed you, just smaller, and overlaid on top of this and including this, um, here is the Greek Empire by the time Alexander was done with his world takeover campaign. All of this by the time he was 33 years old. By the age of 33, he had succeeded to such an extent that it actually made sense within the thought for the time for him to be regarded not just as great, but divine as well. Hundreds of years later, around the time of Jesus, Augustus became ruler of the new empire of the day, the Roman Empire. People like Alexander and later Augustus climbed so high on this ladder, they got to the very, very top and found that there was no place left for them to go except demand people beneath them worship them as gods. And they actually insisted that people call them terms like Lord, Savior, even King of Kings. There's an ancient document, the title translates, The Deeds of the Divine Augustus, and it has 35 of his kind of key accomplishments, military victories, public awards, gifts given to the city at his own expense, building projects, and on and on. Interestingly, Alex, or Augustus wrote this about himself and then had copies distributed all around the empire. A handful of emperors after Augustus, a guy named Nero, took power. And he ruled the Roman Empire during the time Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians. And Nero was infamous for lots of reasons. He made all of his decisions based on what was best for Nero. Uh, for starters, he murdered his own mother. Uh, here's a painting of Nero literally called The Remorse of Emperor Nero After the Murder of His Mother. And you can see he is tore up about it. He just eliminated anyone in his life that he saw as a threat to his status and his rank. In 64 AD, there were massive fires in Rome, and Nero, wanting to save face, needed someone to blame. And the Roman historian Tacitus reports this. He said, the Christians did it. It's their fault, which led, of course, to widespread persecution. This is how the powerful maintain their control. This is how they made sure no one took any of their glory. If you're up here, you protect your status, you protect your rank by grabbing hold of anything you can to stay in that place of exaltation. If you're fortunate enough to make it to the top, you suspect everyone around you is wanting to take your place. And so you eliminate threats. You show no weakness. You trust no one. In fact, you probably got here because you knew how to leverage every person and an opportunity in your life to your advantage. So things like deceit, backstabbing, sometimes literally, um, all fair game. The end always justified the means. Also in this culture, if you were able to pull one over on someone and get away with it because of your cunning or your sophistication, if you could lie really well with a straight face, that was like applauded. It was seen as virtuous. There was a value in, in Roman culture called the cursus honorum, which sounds like something from Harry Potter. But anyway, it's Latin for course of honor. It's the ascent of honor, the upward movement everyone aspired toward, but very, very few 
obtained. Kids were taught from a young age that life was all about climbing the next rung through achievement, through who you rub elbows with by exploiting your status. There are these inscriptions from this time period, actually, of two-year-olds who passed away. And on their gravestones, the parents marked the achievements of their two-year-olds, the class they were born into, their list of distinguishing accomplishments at two. You think parents today sometimes go overboard in bragging about their kids. So in the first century, um, self-promotion, which we have some, at least, some suspicion toward, was not an issue. And it wasn't, this kind of self-congratulation wasn't just for emperors. Everybody did this. Everybody wanted to parade their best accomplishments before others. One more example, um, the famous autobiography of, of Josephus. He's ultimately remembered as a historian of the Jews, and he's really important to historians because he's a credible source outside the Bible who talks about Jesus as an historical figure. But the opening words of his biography or autobiography would be bizarre to any of us. This wouldn't have even raised an eyebrow in the first century Roman world. He starts by talking about how great his family line is and how illustrious his father and mother are and why they're so notable and esteemed and why they basically crushed it in every way possible. And then he's ready to talk about himself. And he says, I made great progress in my education, gaining a reputation for an excellent memory and understanding. While still a mere boy, about 14 years old, I won universal applause for my love of literature, insomuch that the chief priests and the leading men of the city used constantly to come to me for precise information on some particular in our ordinances. He's like, I was a rock star at 14. This goes on and on. And by the way, this is one of the good guys. So all of this that I've showed you, uh, shown you is, is perfectly normal, perfectly acceptable. So clearly, these concepts of status and power and self-promotion you can see how that's woven into like, it's like the air people were breathing. It's woven into the fabric of a place called like Philippi, again, a Roman colony. It's so normal, this way of posturing. You wouldn't even have noticed it. Kind of like we don't think it's strange to have a World Series consisting entirely of American teams. Well, Toronto Blue Jays, okay, but it's just, well, it's just how it is. We don't even think about that. Paul, in Philippians 2, reminds the believers of the example of Jesus. And before we read this, you should know there are aspects of following Jesus. There are dimensions to kingdom living that actually kind of fit with a given culture or place to some degree. Like they don't seem that strange or difficult. Other aspects, though, other parts of following Jesus cut like 180 degrees against the grain. They feel foreign or counterintuitive. And what Paul's going to say here is definitely the latter for them and I would argue for us as well. So with all that in mind, look at Philippians 2, uh, starting in verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. No one had ever like said this before. 
Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. He's just getting warmed up, by the way, but this is already huge. He says, don't act out of selfish ambition. Don't follow your culture, acting out of your own pride or conceit or what will benefit you personally. It's like, wait, what? Hold on, Paul. You want me to look to the people around me and to focus on like their interests and meeting their needs? And he's like, yes, exactly. I want you to operate from humility. That word humility in Greek, it means a lot more than just being modest or deferential or gentle. Humility is a willingness to hold power in service to others. Outside of the New Testament, this Greek word was always used in a derogatory sense. In Greco-Roman society, to be gentle, to serve, to show deference to others, that was what a slave did. That was for people down here. That's what the person who's beneath you is supposed to demonstrate toward you. So humility was never used with positive connotations. If you look at the ancient literature, Greek philosophy, um, Aristotle, Plato, they never talk about humility. That was the attitude of a slave. And yet, this word humility is used 270 times in the New Testament, almost always with positive connotations. So can you see how this was like a worldview, like a revolution in Western culture? Today, of course, we take this 180-degree change for granted. I mean, whether or not we live like this, we all affirm humility is a virtue. I mean, we'll give people a pass sometimes for the, like the incredibly successful you know, musician or athlete or business person or, you know, we'll accept some cockiness or bravado from them, like they're the best, I guess, so they can get a... But when someone in a position of power... When someone at the top demonstrates humility, we all recognize that is like true greatness. One of my favorite examples of this is the story of Sir Edmund Hillary, and it was told by, I read it in a book by John Dixon called Humilitas. In 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary conquered Mount Everest with his Sherpa friend and guide, Tenzing Nor Norgay. And what they achieved together especially for the kind of equipment that they had, it still stands as one of modern times, all-time great physical feats. Sir Edmund Hillary was accordingly honored. Later in 1953, he was knighted. In 1985, he was made New Zealand's high commissioner to India, Nepal, and Bangladesh. In 1995, he received the British realm's highest award, the Order of the Garter membership of which is limited to just 24 individuals. But more important to Sir Edmund Hillary were his efforts to give back to the Nepalese, something of what they had given him. And so through his Himalayan Trust, founded in 1960, he built hospitals, airfields, schools. He's a great example of someone who, you know, I'm going to forego status. He uses his own resources and influence for the good of others before himself. Well, on one of his many, many trips back to the Himalayas, he was spotted by a group of tourist climbers, and they begged for a photo, because here's this icon, right, Sir Edmund Hillary, and he said, sure. And he wasn't climbing, he wasn't prepared for it, but they handed him an ice pick 
so that he would look the part, you know, for the photo. And they set up for the picture. Well, as that was happening, another climber passed by this group. And not recognizing the man at the center, walked up to Sir Edmund Hillary and said, Excuse me, sir, that is not how you hold an ice pick. Here, <laughs> let me show you. And as the story goes, everyone stood around like, uh-oh, in amazed silence as Sir Edmund Hillary thanked the man, let him adjust the pick in his hand, and happily went on with the photograph. See, it really doesn't matter how experienced that other climber was. In some ways, his, that other guy's greatness was diminished by his intrusive presumption. But Sir Edmund Hillary's greatness, however is somehow enhanced by this humility. So I think we all agree there's something inherently beautiful about humility when we see it. Paul challenges us in humility, put others above ourselves. So that's the goal. He's about to give, though, the reason. Like, what's the motivation that we have to, to do this counterintuitive, countercultural uh, value? At this point, Paul shifts from the instructional thing he's doing and this next part reads like a, like a poem or a song. And we don't know if Paul wrote it or if he's borrowing this from like an earlier Christian, you know, creed or hymn. Either way, there is a reason why this is one of the most towering, this next part, most stunning sections of Christology. That's truth about Christ and his accomplishment in the entire New Testament. Verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, mindset, that word is the Greek word phronesis, and Paul brings it up a lot in Philippians. It's simply the attitude of your mind. It's your perspective, your outlook. Paul's saying, and when you know the background, you know why, I'm trying to get you to shift your entire perspective. Your outlook on this whole system and, and what you're trying to accomplish, it needs a complete overhaul. Then he launches into this hymn describing the mindset, the attitude of Jesus, who's the example that we are to follow. So Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Maybe your translation says he didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped, I think he did that on purpose. Jesus didn't regard his status as son of God, as something to use for his own gain. Rather, verse 7, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. In other words, Jesus had some big-time leverage that he never once used for personal gain. He never once played the God card he never, once, he never went around going, hey, do you know who I am? Scoot over. He never cut to the front of the line, even though he outranked everyone by a long shot. He never leveraged that for his own sake. Instead, he took the form, the nature of a servant. He set aside his rights and his privilege. He accepted his human limitations of time and space and, and knowledge even. He never once pushed the God button. Isn't that amazing? He chose to share in our frailty. His glory was hidden in his humanity. 
I think Paul's saying this. You all know about Alexander, and you know about Augustus, and you know about Nero and their claims to greatness. They go around constantly reminding everyone of where they are on the ladder. And Paul says, the people who think they're up here are actually nothing compared to true divinity. Nothing compared to what the true king looks like. Those guys, they're like a shadow of of true greatness. Jesus is the reality. He shows us this whole system of ascent, this structure built on pride and selfishness and ego and personal gain. It's nothing but a hollow shell. Paul says it's a sham. He says when the true king of the universe shows up, He renounces what belongs to him, status, power, rank, glory, position, and purposefully moves all the way down the ladder to the very bottom. You know, it's one thing to say Jesus devoted his life to others, that he didn't seek personal gain, and all of that, of course, is true. Paul isn't quite finished yet. He goes on in verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. There is a reason why Paul interjects the word even, even death on a cross. As you know, in this culture, a cross was the most repulsive form of punishment available. Cicero, a Roman philosopher writing around 80 BC, he says this about crucifixion. Far be the very name of a cross, not only from the body, but even from the thought, the eyes, the ears of Roman citizens. As a Roman, you don't want to hear this word. You don't want to think about it. You certainly don't want to see it. Actually, some people believe that the cross, the word cross was like so offensive, it was a swear word that it got like bleeped, beeped on TV. That the cross beep, sensors were a little bit off. You... You couldn't even say that word. In fact, Emperor Constantine, he publicly converted to Christianity in the 300s in part, some suspect, to unite the empire. But Constantine thought that the cross was an embarrassment. The idea that Jesus would somehow allow that to happen to him did not make sense to him at all. C.S. Lewis makes a great observation that crucifixion did not become common in art until every person who had ever seen one died off. It was the ultimate in shame and humiliation. Paul is very careful to emphasize that when Jesus went to the cross, he humbled himself out of what? Obedience. In other words, it wasn't forced on him. He was not powerless in this moment. He went to the cross as a conscious choice to be obedient to God. Again, author John Dixon, using this example, clarifies what humility is. That means, number one, humility always presupposes one's dignity. That the one being humble acts from a height, so to speak, like our language of, you know, the humble lowering themselves makes clear. The point is that true humility assumes a dignity, a strength of the one possessing the virtue, not to be confused with low self-esteem or being like a doormat. With this, humility must be voluntary. It has to be chosen consciously by the person with power or influence. 
If it's forced on someone, that's called humiliation. And then third, it, it's social. Humility is social. It's not this private, inward, self-deprecation thing that we do in our minds of, okay, maybe I shouldn't talk about my accomplishments so much or whatever. That's called modesty. Humility is actually much more than that. It's a redirection of our power, whether physical, intellectual, financial, relational influence or whatever, for the sake of someone else. Verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus pursued a course of complete status reversal. And as a result, God returned the favor, right? He vindicated his servant. God responds to Jesus by raising him up even higher than he was, if you could say that, before he humbled himself. If Jesus is the true Lord before whom one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess, it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to figure out what is Paul saying about people who think they're up here? To even whisper what Paul puts in writing. You can see why the Romans regarded him as a threat and ended up executing Paul. We worship. We give our lives to a God who descends. For Alexander, for Augusta, Augustus, for, for Nero, the more power, the more authority, the more advantage they had, the more they used that to further their own like arc of greatness. We see the complete opposite in Jesus, working his way down the ladder, taking on our limitations, subjecting himself to the role of a suffering servant, submitting to even death on a cross. This God, wrapped in human flesh, who says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. We see a God with infinite power, infinite authority, who doesn't seek to take or demand. He seeks to serve and yield and lift up. This is the opposite of how our world works. Maybe in some ways this whole ladder system isn't as extreme for us as it was in Jesus' world. So maybe in some ways it's not as overt, but I would argue it is still alive and well. I mean, this is still the goal, right? I mean, yeah, I, I want to be thought of and considered to be humble by others while I keep climbing. That would be nice. The goal is still the same for, for a lot of us. And Jesus' message is still offensive. Paul is saying, I want you to shift your entire mindset. How you look at people, how you view the advantage or the influence or the power that you have been given. He's saying, what are you using that for? Jesus leveraged his power not for his own sake, but for the sake of humanity. So maybe you're here and you're a parent or a boss or a manager, and people look up to you because of your position. 
What do you leverage that for? Um, left to my own devices, I tend to leverage everything for me. And then after that, I might think about someone else because, hey, I'm a nice guy. <laughs> but my natural inclination is to want to submit to myself, and that's it. Besides, if I submit, if I change my whole view of what's even happening here, my mindset, and instead see life as an opportunity to put others ahead of me, I'll never get in the door. It'll be like, after you. No, after you. I mean, you do that. Everyone does it. You, you never get on the elevator, do you? You never get a seat. But I want you to see this is way bigger than just politeness or having good manners. It's actually about how we see our identity, our purpose. So humility is not something we sprinkle in a little bit here, a little bit there, so that hopefully we get our servanthood merit badge. It's a fundamental shift in how we see ourselves in our very purpose in life. It's how we relate in all of our relationships. Quick side note here, I've just noticed as a culture, um, I'm not picking on this at all, I've just noticed that that we're pretty focused on like, what are my gifts? What are my strengths? How am I wired? And there's all kinds of assessments and tests and I have benefited a lot from those. It's been clarifying and helpful and all that. But kind of implied sometimes in that is the idea that you could just find your strengths and just live in that. And that if you could just find that spot, you would be perfectly positioned and usually implied for like success. Here's what's strange, though, about that. As it turns out, nobody has the gift for doing laundry. Did you know that? Like, you know what? You know who you are? You're the laundry guy. The thing about being a servant uh, is kind of obvious, but a servant can't go, I don't really do laundry. I'm more of like an idea guy. You don't get to say that. A servant says, Master, what do you want me to do today? In some ways, though, this thinking kind of creeps into the life of a church, and it's, it kind of helps us rationalize why we don't have to be servants, because we use language of gifting, and, well, you know, I'm gifted in a certain way, and so therefore, that's the only thing I'm ever going to do. And again, turns out no one has the gift of cleaning toilets or cleaning um, kids' toys downstairs. Some people do have the gift of, of greeting people. That's a different thing. We don't all have that. Anyway, um, but somebody has to do this. Somebody has to do these things to be a servant. For the sake of everyone, I have to be a servant. And yeah, we have gifts, but that assumes that you've already taken the posture of a servant, that you exist to give your life away. And then within that, yeah, you find passions and things that make you come alive and and, uh, that you enjoy and, and all that. There's a place for that. Jesus inverts the ladder. He shows us that we need to be heading in the opposite direction from what we've been taught, that the way up is actually down. Not just because we're supposed to or ought to, but because that is what we're created to do. That's where life is found. And so the challenge for those of us who follow Jesus is to say, how can we demonstrate that the ladder is now upside down? It's a change in mindset. It's a conscious decision to refuse to play this game because anything else, we're we're demonstrating that we don't think Jesus was right or we're betraying our belief that um, 
it was good for Jesus to do, but not necessarily something we need to be involved in ourselves. Listen, Jesus submitted himself to everyone in this room, to everyone in the world. He put the needs of you and me ahead of his own. And so Paul is saying, because of what Jesus has done on your behalf, I'm inviting you to do that. By the way, I'm not asking you to die for the other person, right? That's already been done. But when you do this, it shows incredible reverence, incredible respect to Jesus who did this for you. Or to take on this posture of humility, this attitude of a servant, constantly asking, how can I put this person ahead of myself? And yes, let me be clear, there is a place for limits. We've talked a lot about that here. And boundaries and self-care, and you, you got to do that or you have nothing to give. But it's about asking, how can I use what I have been given to lift someone else up? And that somehow in this, we actually gain life. We actually encounter, experience a life full of meaning. Can you imagine if we all, all of us were just thinking, how can I give my life away to lift you up? Like, what if everyone were playing that game instead? What would happen in, in a church? What would happen in a family? I mean, it would change everything. Obviously, as we move into this new season as a church, there's going to be opportunity here. And you guys have always responded amazing to, we, we have this need. Can you serve? Will you help? Can you give a little time? And it, that's going to become even more important in this next season. And so I want to say, well done, and keep doing that. Keep doing that. And I know, I just want to say this, the temptation is to say, well, I'm, I'm busy. I just, I'm busy. I know, I know, I am too. But you realize every week when you come here, you're served by incredibly busy people as well. But all of us having this posture. A couple of thoughts here, closing kind of personal reflection questions. What would it look like, what would it mean for you to look to the interest of others in your life? I think it starts with knowing what people's interests are. Like there's a lot of listening here, asking questions, what's important to you? You got to know what they are before you can honor those. Second question, um, where are you operating out of selfish ambition? A couple questions that maybe get to that a little more. What do you do when someone disagrees with you? Especially when you have strong convictions. Yeah. And what does it mean to say, first of all, you have a different perspective, and that's valid, and I respect that. What does it mean to say, I apologize. I got out of line there. I, you know, I was out of, I'm sorry, I was wrong. How do you respond when you don't get the credit? Oh, because I'm climbing and now they got ahead of me, right? Here's another one. Where do you secretly feel you have fallen behind? 
many times the answer to that question reveals this is kind of your framework. That's why you use language of falling behind. Where do you compare yourself to others? It's usually related to this. Every time you put that other person first, your friend, your roommate, your spouse, even if they don't notice or appreciate it, God sees that. He sees it. Guess who you're honoring when you do that? Jesus. Even the smallest sacrifice in this area is an expression of gratitude to him. It's actually an act of worship to the one who put you first. By taking on the posture of a servant toward others, ultimately, this is the highest motivation possible for serving God himself. Would you stand with me and we'll pray? Um, God, this is obviously uh, so much easier to talk about than to actually do. We get in real life and we've got goals and we've got ambitions and then we encounter, you know, disagreement or obstacles and it just is very difficult. And so, Lord, we pray for your, for your grace. We pray for increased humility in all of our lives, a willingness to look to the interest of others, an ability to submit to admit when we're wrong, to listen. Jesus, thank you for your example. You moved all the way down the ladder and then some. For me, for every person in this room, so that we could have a life with you. So Jesus, help us as we follow you. Um, you are our example. You are what inspires us and motivates us and moves us out. So help us to follow you well. And Lord, I pray that this week we would each have moments where we submit, we serve, and it's at home, it's at the office, it's at school, it's behind the scenes, and, and maybe no one notices and we get zero credit. Help us to remember in that moment we're ultimately serving and honoring you. May you receive that as an act of worship.